Good evening. I confess this morning in the Colossians class that uh, to solve what was a good problem with my our tomatoes, that I took some T-posts to try to shore up those cages that you put them in, and the leaves are starting to turn a little yellow, so I'm not sure that was the best thing for me to do. I might have driven those posts down into the roots of those tomatoes. We'll see. But when it comes to horticulturally speaking, I think it's fair to say that my thumb can be more brown than it is green. But I don't blame that on my ancestors. As I have mentioned on multiple occasions, my mom's dad was a cotton farmer in the Delta of Mississippi for his career. But my dad's dad, who worked for the state of Georgia, also had a large farm and had uh, an orchard. And from that, he was able to supplement the food for our uh, my uncles and aunts and my dad. And my mom and dad growing up always had a garden, especially when we lived in South Georgia. And they not only had a garden big enough to take care of themselves, but we were always sharing with people at church. I think it's fair to say that for Kathy and I, it's been mixed results when we have tried to plant a garden. Uh, and even though that's the case, I think that we have been able to learn a lot of the and appreciate the lessons that farmers and others who plant in the gardens learn. Not just the law of sowing and reaping, but the importance of being patient and the scourge of weeds. When I think about the subject that we're addressing tonight, I, I think that it's an appropriate one because much of the Bible is written to agrarian societies. When you think about most of the people to whom the Bible is written, uh, farming and gardening and planting orchards would have been a natural part of what they did. When we think about in Genesis chapter 3, when the curse comes to man, there's going to be thorns and that's going to be part of the sweat in the face of Adam as he tries to make a living for his family. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain tilled the ground. And in Genesis chapter 8, Noah planted a vineyard. And in Amos chapter 8 and verse 2, we see that Amos had an orchard of figs. And when they weren't forced to be nomads and they could stay in their land, what we see from the Israelites is that they were those who were farmers and planters. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14 and 15. And so it was something that was understood in the ancient world in both the Old and the New Testament. But it's also something that much of the world still appreciates and understands today. You may not know this, but 2.6 billion people worldwide, that's about a third of the world's population, are small farmers. Many of them are subsistence farmers, which means they have a, far, a garden or a farm that's just enough to take care of their family, and they have no income or way to raise money outside of that. And in addition to that, when we think about our country, only 2% of the country are farmers or ranchers, but they are responsible for 15% of the United States workforce. No wonder when we go to the Bible, we see uh, illustrations and we see teachings that come from this idea of farming and gardening. Why Jesus would do as we saw in the reading that Cason did so well a moment ago in Matthew chapter 13 verse 24 through 30 of many parables that center around that particular illustration. And we also find New Testament writers who will appeal back to that and they'll draw application and make points with regard to it. What I'd like for us to do in the few moments that we have is to look at some principles that we find from farmers in the New Testament. 
The first principle that we see being taught with regard this idea of farming is the principle of priorities. You may remember in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15 that Jesus says, Take heed and beware of covetousness, because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. And he told a certain parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? that I may have room to bestow my crops and my goods. This I will do. I will tear down my barns and build greater ones, and there I will bestow my crops and my goods. And I will say unto my soul, Soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. God said unto him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and then who shall those things be which you have provided? So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I think all of us are familiar with that parable. But when we begin to analyze that, it's good for us to ask the question, what was not the problem? What was not the difficulty or the reason why Jesus would use this man in this parable? And there are several things that were not the problem for the rich farmer. For one thing, you need to notice that his prosperity was not the reason why Jesus condemns this man. In fact, when you look throughout the Bible in both Testaments, I always think about Barzillai, the Gileadite, who helps David when he's on the run. He is exceedingly wealthy, and there are other rich individuals with him, and they almost certainly made the difference between life and death when David's on the run from Saul. But just in the New Testament, think of individuals whose prosperity we find that are lifted up in a positive light. I think about the two men who were Jesus' allies on the Sanhedrin court. To get onto the Sanhedrin court meant you had to be a person of great influence. And in politics then, as it is today, influence would be synonymous with not only power but wealth. Nicodemus was the secret disciple, and we're not as clear about his financial picture. But we are Joseph of Arimathea. He is a man who's a rich man. Scripture tells us that. And he provided Jesus a tomb uh, of his own property. We think about the women who supported Jesus and the disciples in their ministry that Luke tells us about. They were financially prosperous and they used it in the right way. When we get outside of the Gospels and we look at Acts and we look at the epistles, we see other individuals who use their prosperity for the glory and the advancement of the cause of Christ. I think about Barnabas. One of the early examples in Acts chapter 4 and verse 36, a man who sold of his property, a symbol, a sign that he had some affluence and he distributed that for the, goods, uh, the good of the church. Or what about Aquila and Priscilla who didn't necessarily do anything financially or John Mark's mother, but they had a home that was spacious enough that the church could meet there and they decided to open up their home for that particular purpose. And so we find prosperity in righteous individuals throughout the Bible. In fact, if you think about Paul in writing to Timothy, he says, I want you to instruct the rich to fix their hope on God, to be ready to share, to do good, and to be generous. And there's no reason for him to share that instruction unless it's possible for the wealthy to embrace that teaching and to live by it. So as we read this parable in Luke chapter 12 and think about the lesson that's being taught, the problem with that farmer was not his prosperity. Furthermore, his search for a resolution was not the problem. This man had bumper crops. And he had to do something about that. 
And so as all of that is increasing, he's got to figure out what he's going to do. And with all that increasing, if he had not accommodated that, wouldn't we say that was foolish and wasteful on his part? He's trying to make provisions for it. That was not the problem. Then also his renovation project is not pointed out as a problem. The the, uh, rebuilding and the expansion process, there's no criticism for that. So what was the problem in this parable as it relates to Jesus using it? Well, we see that his problem is explained in verse 15. His life consisted in the abundance of the things that he possessed. And because that was his mentality in life, it led to some grave spiritual problems on his part. For one thing, he was self-centered. This man was so focused on himself... and. As my dad preached growing up, you know, as is often the case, my poor boys had to go through this. They'll hear me preach sermons more than once. But I remember that one of dad's favorite sermons was preaching on the rich farmer and his eye problems. Eleven times in this short parable, he says, I, me, or my. He can't see outside of himself. His whole world was as it related back to him, and it led to his priority issues. Not only was he self-centered, but he thought that he was self-made. Do you see God reaching out to him, speaking tongue-in-cheek, and he says, Who shall these things be which you have provided? He thought that he was the reason for his success. And you think about this man being a farmer. Of all individuals, he should have understood how dependent he was upon God. He had some awareness of God, or otherwise, Jesus would not insert in the parable that God came to him and spoke to him. But there was no place for him to think about God's part in this. In Matthew 5 and verse 44 and 45, God sent the rain and the sun for him. God brought him fruitful seasons. Acts chapter 14 and verse 17. And even in a broader sense... He should have understood that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He thought that he was the reason why he was in this cherry predicament. Then also we noticed that he left God out of the picture. He did not acknowledge God, he did not thank God, and he did not humble himself before God. And this turned out to be an eternally fatally mistake for him. His problem was one of priorities. He put himself above God. He put the physical above the spiritual. I don't know how many people that we know or we come in contact with that we can say, we can relate to the problem of the rich farmer. How many folks have you talked to lately who say, man, things are just going too good for me. I'm too rich. I'm too successful. And I just don't know what to do with myself. Man, this is terrible. When we think about life as it is for us, many of us are successful in our jobs. When we look at our relationships, we can say, I'm so blessed in that. And especially when we compare ourselves with over 90-something percent of the world, we are the wealthiest of the world. Those who are struggling the most in this room tonight financially are wealthier than the bulk of the world. And we also find ourselves in a place where we have more stuff than we know what to do with. And there are so many things that can distract us and can pull our eyes off of God and His work. And when that happens, no matter what it is that pulls us away, we are struggling with the same priority problem that the rich farmer was in Luke chapter 12. 
You know, um, you may remember that when Katie Couric left NBC, she wound up being on Yahoo News. And there was a, a, a news show that went along with that. And one of her favorite features for years was giving the top ten stories of the year. Now, she no longer does that, but Google picked up the, that mantle and they now provide for us the top stories that we search in society. Now, the latest year, because we're still in 2022, is 2021. I want you to think about what do you think that people were the most interested in in 2021. Here's what they divined from their research that folks were were looking up Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie. Do you remember those individuals? Or how about Kyle Rittenhouse? That was one of the things that people searched for, so much wanted to know so much about. There was the billion-dollar winner... In the mega millions drawing, that uh, uh, I don't know that they've identified them up in Michigan. And people want to know by, I guess they wanted to find out who they were and how life was for them since that happened. Do you remember the AMC stock thing that was going on? What's going to be the future of that and all the manipulation in the market? People were looking that up. Stimulus checks. People were searching, I guess, am I getting mine? Do I qualify? How do I get it? Where is it? And those kinds of things. The Georgia Senate race. That was one of the things that people searched and, and came up. And as you you think about what was searched in 2021, does it surprise you that the advent of the COVID vaccine was something that people were searching? The Georgia Senate race, that was another. And then the metaverse and that weird transition, I guess, from Facebook to metaverse. You think about what they have in common. There are things like politics and, and money and even race relations and health. But people on the whole in the world are not searching God and His Word and His will. It's instructive for us. It helps us to understand what Jesus says with regard to this life that the majority are not seeking, Matthew seven thirteen and 14. But what about us? The rich farmer challenges us. It challenges me to ask, what does my life consist of? Does it consist only of my job and of my possessions? And of my hobbies and my pleasures, does my life truly consist of God's will and His church and His pleasure and His mission for me in this earth? And so the rich farmer is a great example of what not to do in priorities. Longest section in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus devotes to our concern, our obsession with material things. And He starts the section by saying, you can't serve two masters, Matthew 6, 24, but seek first the kingdom of God. And His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. But when we think about Jesus and how He decides to illustrate priorities, He reaches into the field of agriculture and He says, I want you to look at this farmer as an example of what not to do. But then second, from the New Testament we see that the writers also teach us the principle of perseverance. When we look in Paul's last letter, so far as we know by inspiration that he pins, Paul writes to Timothy and he says this simple statement. He says, the hard-working farmer must be the first to partake of his fruits. Now he says that in a context in which he gives three illustrations to make the same point. And that point is, keep your focus and keep at the job till you reach the end. 
Alright, and so he looks into three different areas. He says that first of all, the soldier has got to keep his focus and he has got to work to the end. And the way he does that is by focusing on his job, shutting out all other distractions and pleasing his superior. The athlete, he does that by competing according to the rules. And then Paul focuses on this farmer and he says there's two principles that we can learn from him by looking at this farmer. The first thing that he demonstrates for us is the character of, per, of endurance or perseverance. He says, the hard-working farmer. Now, that causes us to think a little bit about what might be involved in that. When you think about all that's engaged in, in, in farming, there's the back-breaking work day in and day out. There's the expense there's the ongoing maintenance and tending that has to be done. There are the predators, both of the bug variety and of the animal variety, that you've got to be concerned about. There's, there's all that might cause you to want to give up. There's the discouragement. There's the sheer exhaustion. And so Paul qualifies this farmer and he says he's the hard-working farmer. He's not the lazy, lackadaisical farmer. You know, we had one of our, our children that started a, a, a garden this year. We've been there before, and they had to be away for uh, several days, and, and they had they got busy with other things. And they they told us we asked them about how the how the garden was doing, and and they said we're growing some really healthy and strong weeds. And it got to the point where they just couldn't keep up with it anymore. You see, you've got to stay at the task. And the Apostle Paul is talking about the hard-working farmer to make this point. Are there things in this spiritual life that tempt you to give up? Have you ever been offended? Have you ever been neglected? Have you ever been ignored? Have you ever had a spiritual role model that you held up on a pedestal and they let you down? Have you ever had a circumstance to where somebody who you thought knew better lived in such a way that just dashed your feelings and thoughts with regard to them? You ever been offended? You ever been mad? You ever been hurt by a brother or sister in Christ? You ever been in a situation to where a temptation so took root in your life that you felt like it was going to pull your faith apart? Or did you ever find yourself so troubled by a creeping doubt that was a part of your life? Have you ever allowed problems and persecutions to get you to the point that you were ready to throw up your hands and give up? There's no mistake that that's going to happen to you. It has always happened. And so that's why God fills His Word with admonitions like Galatians 6 and verse 9 and 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 13. Do not be weary in well-doing. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3. Don't lose heart. The character of endurance and perseverance is not that you're going to have some way to live so that you don't have problems. It's that you don't give up when they come. The Apostle Paul is encouraging a young preacher in this. And the principle applies to all of us. He says, don't give heed to uh, worldly fables that are fit only for old women, but rather exercise yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable in all things, having the promise of the life that now is and the life which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, for which reason we labor and strive Because we fix our hope on the living God, who's the Savior of all men, especially of believers. There's the character of perseverance. We labor and we strive. We keep at it. 
I realize that there's a sense in which I am preaching to the choir. What brings a Sunday night Christian back to services on Sunday night? It's because you get this principle that Paul is laying out there for us. And that's that you don't let this world so consume you and overcome you that you give up. It's the character. But it's more than that. It's not just the character of perseverance, but he says that the, the hard-working farmer should be the first to partake of his fruits. It's a principle of the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, this is taught by Moses in the law. In Deuteronomy 20 and verse 6, it's taught in the wisdom literature in Proverbs 27 and verse 18. The idea being that you should be partaker of what it is that you plant in the ground. In fact, when prophets like Jeremiah come along and say, you're planting your vineyards and your farms right now, but you're not going to be able to enjoy the fruit of it. You're going to be carried away into captivity, and so you won't even see the end of your results. That's out of the ordinary. And in the New Testament, Paul uses the same analogy in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 7 when he says, who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? What Paul is doing here in 2 Timothy chapter 2 is he's making a point about obtaining salvation and eternal glory in verse 10. None of us are, are, are righteous enough and good enough that we can earn our way to heaven. But the idea is if you want to be with our Lord forever, you've got to have that hard working ethic of the farmer and you'll see the reward of that. You know, when Paul gives the law of sowing and reaping, we often emphasize the first part, but it's a two-part law. He says, be not deceived, God is not mocked for whatsoever a man sows, that he'll also reap. Yes, he that sows to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. There's where we usually take that passage to say, you live according to the world, it is going to bear that fruit in your life. You sow your, your wild oats, you're going to reap that crop. Sometimes it's a bumper crop. But he doesn't end there. He says, he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. You see, that's the reward of endurance. And the Apostle Paul is reaching into the agricultural world to say, I want you to see that just like it is for the farmer, so it is for you as you're sowing in your Christian life. You know, a recent Baltimore... um, Marathon. Uh, th- what the officials uh, did in response to a growing trend was very interesting to me. They set up officials throughout the course and they encouraged the spectators not to yell a particular phrase for much of the course. And it may surprise you what that phrase was. It wasn't inflammatory. It wasn't threatening in any way. You know what it was? You're almost there. And the problem they said with that is is that if they were to yell that, then people would sprint too soon and they wouldn't make it to the end. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, shut out the noise. As you're trying to make it to the end, you endure until the race is over. You keep at the farming until harvest time comes. But then when we go and look at the farmers, there's another lesson that we learn from them that's challenging and yet it's so important. We see that in the New Testament we learn about farmers the principle of patience. Be patient, therefore, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, and he has patience for it until he receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This is at the end of the letter that James writes in James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. And as we look at this particular admonition... There are three things I want to point out to you. 
But first of all, patience is taught. He says, be patient, therefore, unto the coming of the Lord. Now, what James is talking about in context is patience among those who have less with brothers and sisters in Christ who have more. There were rich brethren who were treating their poorer brethren unfairly. And they're wondering, when are things going to be made right? But as you read through James chapter 5, outside of that singular issue, you have an instruction manual on how we are to deal with one another when there are problems within the body of Christ. And for all that he says, one of the main principles that he lays down is that if we're going to be successful as the children of God and we're going to, at the end of that, grow, that we've got to be patient with one another. And so that patience is instructed. And then he turns around and he illustrates that patience. He says, he points us to that trusty farmer one more time. And we'll notice some things he says about him. He says that that farmer waits. You know, patience, it seems to me, almost always involves waiting. I want to confess something to you. We were on our way to church tonight. We left fairly early, you know, and we thought everything was going to be great. And no offense if there's anybody here from Alabama tonight, but somebody with an Alabama tag got in front of us. And those of you who ride up and down Cemetery Road... It's feast or famine. It might be 80 miles an hour, or it might be that you get behind somebody who is going 35. It's a 55 mile an hour. And that poor person, every time they got to about 43, 44, they got scared, hit their brakes. I said, Kathy, I'm preaching about patience tonight. I think, I wonder if this is providential. The Lord brought this for me to remember. Delayed gratification without the delay is something else altogether, isn't it? Paul says, well, you're saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, what does he yet hope for? But if we do with patience wait for it, there's the kind of hope that's going to save us. I, I know we have firefighters and police officers and rescue crews have had this device for a long time. I don't know how commonly they are used anymore. It's called a MERT. It's called a mobile infrared transmitter. And it was used for a long time to help uh, those who are responding to crime scenes and accidents to be able to change the light in order to get there. But you may know this, but these were have been available on the open market to other drivers for several years. It used to be on the open market, I believe it's only now on the black market, even though it's against state laws and federal laws to use that because of the potential danger that would happen when somebody's arbitrarily changing the light. But here's my question, why is there even a market for there in the first place? Because we're impatient. We hate sitting at a light. And if somebody's in front of us and the light turns green and there's three to five seconds that go by, what are, you know, you're, you're singing, you know, Lord make me a servant, make me like, you know, you're angry, you're upset. And you know they're on their phone and you're wondering, when are they going to keep moving? Or maybe you get there to that red light, that yellow, that red light that's a turning lane and it's four in the morning and there's nobody else around and it seems like that light stays red for 15 minutes. Patience is tested and tried in little ways and big ways. But Paul is speaking to these brethren who are wondering, when are things that are wrong going to be made right? But what James is saying is, you let God work in His time. God will make things right. You wait on Him. And I think that's so important for us as we're striving to live the Christian life. We think, when are things going to be made right? The farmer waits. We need to wait and realize that God's in control. But then the farmer also waits for harvest. 
there's different, you know, there, there's different variables involved in harvest. Different things that we plant have a different timetable. They mature at different times. There are different conditions that can affect that. Things like rain that will affect when harvest comes. But the, the point in all of this is, is that we're waiting. We continue to plant seeds. We plant those seeds of evangelism. We plant those seeds of service for Christ and for others. We plant those seeds even in infertile fields. And why do we do that? Because harvest is coming and God will sort it all out in the end. That's what we read in Matthew 13, 24 through 30. But the farmer also waits for what brings harvest. <clears throat> do you notice that he says, the farmer waits with patience until he receives the early and the latter rains? If any of you, I know several of you have planted a garden wasn't it wonderful all the moisture that we got building up into the spring and into late spring and early summer? Man, it just looked like that we were really setting the table for that. And then we went a month without rain and moisture. And now we're getting a little of that. And, and that happens very routinely, that there's too much or too little moisture. But James points that out specifically. In Palestine, where there was very little ground in that arid temperatures, in their terrace gardens, they needed the fall or autumn rains and then they needed the spring rains. May I suggest to you that God is working through conditions and circumstances throughout your life. You wait for what brings harvest. And what brings harvest? Well, sometimes it's negative. We're to, to accept the discipline of the Lord, the refining of our character. Between now and the time that either Christ comes again or uh, until we die, there are going to be things in our lives, in the process, in the stages of life that will make the discipline of the Lord necessary. Working through the, the negative in order to bring about positive in us. Providence are the conditions that bring about harvest. You know, God works through time and events for good. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And yet it can be tough for us to be patient in that because we want it to happen now. Or we think about answered prayer. There are things that we may be praying about. Justin did such a great job last Wednesday night in talking about how God's working in His timetable and we can trust that the answer to the prayer is going to be of the greatest benefit for the kingdom and if we are tools in His hand, then He's going to work through us to that same end. And so he illustrates it with the farmer. But then he also says, I want you to imitate him. I want you to be like that farmer. You also be patient for the coming of the Lord draws nigh. How? Strengthen your hearts. You may notice this if you read through the book of James, that a focus on the heart is a big part of his letter. There are so many things that can happen in our heart that keep us from enduring, as Paul would say it. It might be that we are uh, deceived in our hearts. James chapter 1 and verse 26. We may be filled with jealousy and selfish ambition in our heart. James 3 and verse 14. We may be impure in our hearts. James 4 and verse 8. We may be seeking worldly pleasures in our heart. James chapter 5 and verse 5. But we need to focus on what can cause the heart to stray. Be careful what you say to yourself when you talk to yourself. You can certainly very easily give yourself a message that is not going to lead to what comes at harvest. And then the idea is that you strengthen your heart. Be prepared for harvest. Harvest is coming. And the idea of harvest is great if we're prepared for that. But if we're not, it's a dawning idea. 
Most countries have a Farmer of the Year award, many of them at least. Every state, at least in the southeast, has a Farmer of the Year award. And there's a National Farmer of the Year award. Each and every year it's granted down in Tifton, Georgia. And this year's Farmer of the Year is a man by the name of Sam Hall. Sam Hall's from York, South Carolina. And he was picked out of all the farmers who were nominated. What will happen is somebody in the community will nominate and then the National Farmers Association will look into that. Farm Bureau and several other entities will investigate and at the end of that they will choose their man. Sam was chosen because he had an agricultural oasis in a largely urban area. His crop yield per acre is unmatched. His crop diversification, his crop rotation system over 41 years has been so incredible that it's led them to be very lucrative in business. And as a result of that, you know what they do for the National Farm of the Year? Give them $17,500. Maybe that doesn't, depending on who you are, may not sound like a lot, but that's $17,500 more than zero. But not only that, they give them a year's use of a Massey Ferguson tractor. And then they give them a jacket. Give them a nice smoker, give them a Henry rifle, and then on the state level they receive all of these cash prizes. But more than that, they have the honor bestowed on them that everybody knows that they are superlative in the field of farming. Well, boy, Todd, don't you feel bad because you always get called when we talk about farming. He doesn't care. You know, I'm sure Todd wouldn't mind being named the Farmer of the Year. That's some pretty nice perks. He would like to be known as the best farmer around. I'm sure there's a lot of positive that goes along with that. But all of us are planting seeds for an inevitable harvest. And we're planting one kind or another. And what James and Paul say is that we want to be such farmers that we're encouraged and we realize what's promised to us if we sow to the Spirit. And then Jesus points out an unfortunate man who forgot to focus on the source of his success in his farming. Each of us are planning day by day for an inevitable harvest. This evening it may be that you find yourself in a position to where what's being sown is not what you want in the end. And so you want to change that. It's as easy as making that decision. Perhaps in accordance with your understanding of the Word of God, you're ready to respond to that in a saving faith that repents of sin and that causes you to be obedient to the gospel plan of salvation, to be baptized, to be buried with them in baptism, to rise to walk in newness of life, raised by faith in the operation of God, who raised Jesus from the dead. If that's what you seek, we can help you to do that. If you're a child of God, and you realize that you've let the things of this world to distract you and to keep you from what you know God has you here to do, maybe you're struggling in some way with your faith, and maybe you need us to pray with you and for you. If we can do that, we would love to do that. If, if you need to respond to this invitation, why not now as we stand and sing this song?